This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 301. This podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the ultimate daily all-in-one health drink with 75 proven vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients that makes it easier for you to get comprehensive nutrition. Just go to athleticgreens.com forward slash MTA to get 20 free travel packs with your first purchase. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash MTA. Welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where we empower you to run a marathon and change your life. I'm Trevor. And I'm Angie. In this episode, we speak with running shoe expert Brian Metzler, author of the new book, Kixology, the hype, science, culture, and cool of running shoes. Plus, Angie shares tips on how to get the most out of your running shoes. And you'll hear from a runner who's been listening to the MTA podcast since the very beginning. And of course, you can get more help taking your training to the next level inside the academy and with our awesome coaches. Learn more about how it works when you visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. So, Angie, you just got back from marathon number 62. It seems like you were always just getting back from a marathon lately. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a busy fall, that's for sure. And that was the Manchester City Marathon in Manchester, New Hampshire. And of course, we'll tell you guys all about that in a coming episode. But yeah, how are you feeling? Tired. <laughs> you should be. You've run three marathons in the last 30 days, right? Yeah, that's right. And a lot of travel in between. So looking forward to some rest and recovery time. And I just signed up for another race. I will be at the San Antonio Rock and Roll Marathon. I'm going to do the half on December 8th. And also one of our fabulous coaches here on the team, Coach Athena, who lives in San Antonio, will also be there. And we're planning a meetup. So if any of you are going to be at the San Antonio Rock and Roll Marathon or you live in the area, want to come hang out, eat some good Mexican food, and talk about running, shoot me an email. You can send it to Trevor at MarathonTrainingAcademy.com. So most recently, at the time of this recording, we had a big weekend. A lot of great stories from our community that came out of that. So Angie's going to give a few shout outs here before we jump into our interview. That's right. This note comes from Anna. She is in the academy. She says, this year has been the first back to running after a six to seven year hiatus. The furthest I had gone in the past was 13.1 during several Disney races. This year, it all started with a crazy urge to do the Dopey Challenge, which of course led to getting way more dedicated than ever before, hiring MTA coach Lynn, binging MTA podcasts, and signing up for various races along the way. Today was the first half in the series, and I didn't care much about time, but I thought it'd be fun to beat my previous PR of 2.23. I finished in 2.03.58, and my husband got 1.59 for his first official half marathon. Well, that's great to hear, Anna. Congrats on getting back to running after your hiatus and studying the PR and also hearing about your husband's success at his first official half marathon. Love it. That's right. We also got this note from Olivia. She says, hi, Angie and Trevor. I just ran my first marathon at age 19 on Saturday. Hopefully many more on the horizon. Here's a picture of happy tears crossing the finish line. I couldn't have done it without MTA coach Joel. That's so cool. I wish I would have started when I was 19 long distance running. I don't know what I was doing back then, but uh, that's so awesome. Congrats, Olivia, on running your first marathon at such a young age, a lot younger than most people start. Yeah, that's right. 
And this note comes from Mark. He said, yesterday I ran the Bass Pro Conservation Marathon, which was my fourth marathon. My performance exceeded my highest expectations, and I'm so thankful for everything. My most excellent MTA coach, Steve, gave me what I felt was an aggressive goal. In truth, I was hopeful, but not 100% confident that I could come close to achieving the goal. In the previous three marathons, the last 10K was a carnival of pain, and I finished a miserable mess. However, yesterday was different. At around mile 20, I still felt strong with gas in the tank and was able to pick up the pace a little, and by mile 22, I tossed the entire pacing strategy out the window and just ran hard. I'm not big on mantras, but if I had one yesterday, it was something along the lines of, it won't hurt when you're dead, so appreciate the pain now. Hmm. My A goal was 4.20, and I finished in 4.18, which is a 39-minute PR. Nice. He described it as a carnival of pain. That's a new one for us. (laughs) That's very vivid. That's a scary carnival. (laughs) (laughs) Most of us have been to a carnival, and... They're already scary enough. (laughs) Clowns. (laughs) (laughs) Can't wait to see a carnival of pain. That's awesome, Mark. Congrats on your 39-minute PR and putting the hammer down. That's right. And we got this very nice note from Wayne in Alberta, Canada. He says, I started running again in early 2018 just to get in shape and feel better in body and mind. Fast forward to January of 2019, and now 40 pounds lighter, I was thinking of running a distance race. A marathon seemed like a lofty goal to achieve, so I signed up for the Edmonton Marathon. My brother had run some long-distance races and was my inspiration to do this. He ran the death race in Alberta in the summer of 2017. It's a 125-kilometer race with 17,000 feet of elevation gain. I asked him what podcast he listened to to prepare, and he recommended MTA. All right. Tell them thank you for us. That's right. After listening to a few of your podcasts, I signed up for lifetime membership. FYI, one of the best investments I've made. I like to hear that too. Thank you, Wayne. <laughs> I followed your three-hour and 50-minute marathon training plan starting in February. Since then, I've run 12 half marathons, four marathons, and several 10Ks. All my marathons have been sub four hour with a BQ qualifying time of 325 on my third one in August. I'll be turning 58 in December. I followed your 330 marathon training plan. I'm registered and Boston bound in April. I'll also be running the Revel Coolia Series Marathon in Hawaii in January, and my wife and I look forward to meeting up with you guys. Nice. She's been a huge inspiration and support and recently completed her first half marathon. Thanks again. Congrats on your 300th episode, and I look forward to seeing you in Hawaii. That's awesome. We look forward to meeting you, Wayne, uh, and your wife, and congrats on all the hard work and just the huge results you've seen over the last year or so. You are running some fantastic finishing times. Everyone that's writing this is like faster than me now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure even better, you know, being able to, he just started the process to get fit and feel healthier, but he's managed to lose so much weight and been able to run so many races. I'm sure it feels like he has a new lease on life. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing about running. Congrats to everyone out there just putting in the work and taking action in your health. We hope this episode uh, is enjoyable. We're going to dive deep into the world of running shoes. Angie, I think for years now you've been saying we need to get a running shoe expert on the podcast. Yeah, I think you know you're a running shoe geek if you can remember your first pair of running shoes and you can pretty much go through and name like all the shoes you used for all of your top races. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think I was reminiscing with you, Trevor, remembering the first pair of running shoes that I bought as a 14-year-old. I had just opened a checking account and my first check that I wrote 
course, this is like way back, like <laughs> in the 90s, 90s, early 90s, was for a pair of Nike running shoes. And I bought them, to be honest, mostly for the color and the look of them. And well, because it's the 90s, right? It was the 90s. And you're yeah. 14. <laughs> <laughs> and I really wasn't much of a runner at the time. And looking back, they were too small because every time I wore them, my foot felt pinched. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really wear them a lot. And they just kind of like sat in my closet for several years. But they were beautiful. You don't want to get rid of them because you spent your own hard-earned money on them, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. And in this conversation, you're going to hear kind of the evolution of running shoes from back in the 90s or the 80s, like Angie was mentioning, all the way to the vapor flies with the carbon plates that we're seeing now. Plus, considerations for those that just want to go into a running shoe store and make an intelligent decision. And big thanks to all the Academy members who sent in questions for this episode. Those questions became the basis of how we shaped our conversation. Uh, Brian Metzler is the author of the book, Kixology. He's a freelance writer for Runner's World, Men's Health, Outside, and Gear Junkie, and is also the founding editor of Trail Runner Magazine. So here's our conversation with Brian Metzler. Okay, we're on the podcast now with Brian Metzler, author of the book, Kixology, The Hype, Science, Culture, and Cool of Running Shoes. Brian, welcome to the MTA podcast. Hey, thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. I am so excited to have you on the show. I've been wanting to interview a shoe expert for literally years, but we didn't really want someone who was associated with a particular shoe company because, you know, they might be a little bit biased toward their shoes. So really excited this book came out. I devoured it. I don't know why, just I have this longtime love of running shoes as well. So first off, can you tell us a bit about how you first started running and what led you to your lifelong love of running shoes? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, as a kid, I, I just was, uh, you know, always outside, always playing, always running around with my brother and our friends and everything else. And I just loved, loved running. I loved all aspects of it. And, uh, you know, early on, I think at some point in uh, first grade, uh, we had this uh, field day and um, this 50 yard dash competition. And I, I knew among the boys, I was one of the faster boys, you know, and like, so I was like, um, you know, I want to win this and get the blue ribbon and everything else. And then, um, I think I ran pretty well. And then uh, this girl, Lori Habegger, beat me by like, you know, two tenths of a second. And <laughs> and, and she won the award and good for her. And she was an ex- extraordinary athlete. And she was all through high school and everything. But ultimately, I, I kind of was humbled by that and uh, had nothing to do with being a girl as much as I, just, I was humbled. And so that was my first kind of memory of competition. But since then, I, you know, I always wanted to do more and race more and, and, and just compete more um, in running. So it kind of started from there. Awesome. So do you remember what your first real pair of running shoes was? There was a, a shoe Nike made called the Yankee, which was um, not really um, a super, you know, marketed shoe, but it was this really cool shoe that was really uh, had a soft kind of low to the ground feel. And I just felt very fast in them. I think um, it was like black and gray and looked pretty stealth. Um, I think I think I liked him because my brother had him and I always like coveted what he was doing and he was always faster than I was. And so I think I was I was really into those and I got I got a pair of Yankees. I was pretty so excited about that. And then my second real pair was uh, a pair of the original Adidas Oregons. Um, I love those. So and you've had over fifteen hundred pairs of running shoes. Yeah, easily. I think um, that's a, that's a, probably a low estimate based on the numbers I've personally had in run-in, and then also of all the shoes I've tested in the last 25 years. You know, wear tested mostly for media, um, for magazines, or you know what have you. Um, 50 to 70 a year, easily. Um, you know, they they certainly add up. But um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun, and I can 
I can recall quite a few of them, not every one of them, but um, <laughs> certainly a few of them blur together. And every now and then I'll, I'll be with a fellow shoe, shoe dog, as they say, but like, and like, remember that shoe? And like, you know, sometimes you'll see um, a pattern of something in a, in a new shoe and you're like, oh, that, that's got to be from that, you know, and wow. sometimes brands will bring back logos or stylings and uh, that's been kind of fun. So yeah, quite a few shoes uh, over the last, you know, probably 25 to 30 years or whatever. So you're probably, your eyes are probably trained to spot shoes when runners come by. Yeah, I think that um, the biggest thing, even around Boulder, where I know a lot of runners, if I'm um, either running or, or driving, you know, by somebody or at a stoplight, I, I look at runners, I look at their feet, I look at their shoes, and I'm always curious as to what people are wearing relative to the conditions, kind of how fast they're running, if they're on a trail, and kind of what trail too. So yeah, it's like, it's one of those things where um, it's almost second nature. And, and I do that in airports too. I do that, you know, last week I was in New York for, the, for all the marathon stuff and more so than the race, I was just noticing, you know, all these runners from out of town, big groups of Italians and French runners that run kind of together uh, the day before in the park and just looking at their shoes, you know? And so it's pretty fascinating to see um, both what shoes they're wearing, but also how trends kind of carry over to other countries. So as a shoe tester, how do you decide what shoes you're going to wear? I mean, is there kind of like a, a system to put them through their paces and kind of, you know, figure out their, their different features and functions? Yeah, so uh, the process typically starts with, you know, understanding each brand and kind of what they have coming out at a certain time. And so if you're doing a shoe review for, let's say, a November issue of a magazine that would come out right now, um, certainly you, you, you probably in April you're, you're seeing demos or seeing uh, samples of those shoes either at a trade show or the Boston Marathon weekend. Uh, often you'll visit uh, shoe companies and see stuff then. And then it's a process of getting, you know, wear testers to, you know, line up to, to test them. And then typically I've had a couple different types of uh, criteria checklists and really try to cue runners uh, as well as myself into and uh, um, testing as blindly as possible. Um, certainly when you put a shoe on, it's hard to not know what it is, but um, you try, try not to think about it for the first, you know, couple miles of any given run. I do typically test every shoe, you know, three to four to five different runs on different terrain, depending on what kind of shoe it is, um, for different speeds, different durations. But, but certainly in those first um, miles of that run, try and forget about the shoe. And then as you get into it, you kind of think, oh, what, what is this shoe doing? You know, how does it feel? Does it feel light? Does it feel soft? Does it feel fast? Does it feel heavy? Does it feel burdensome? Um, does it flex well? Um, things like that. And then you can really kind of understand based on the, the foot to brain kind of connection, like it's, uh, what it's really all about. Yeah, this would be a, maybe a good chance to ask a follow-up question uh, that's related because we've had people ask us, what do you look for when you buy a shoe? Especially if they're a new runner, they're going to a running store, they're pulling them off the shelf and kind of what you said there about the flexibility and lightness of weight and, you know, examining what materials they're built out of. Like, what are some things that you recommend people look for when they're new and they're just overwhelmed with all the selection at the running store? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I always tell people is you've got to find shoes that fit your foot. Um, and that that's um, kind of a loaded question. I think it comes down to fitting certainly the length, but also uh, the shape of your, of your foot and also whatever other idiosyncrasies your foot might have. I mean, if you put, you know, a thousand feet down, you have a thousand different shapes of feet. And also most people have different aspects of, of each left and right, you know, so so that's the biggest thing. And, and so that relates to kind of the, the last and the shape of a shoe. Uh, certainly certain brands fit differently than others. And so if you have the knowledge of kind of what your what your foot is like going in, you can probably either 
work with um, you know the shoe fitter at your local running store um, to understand like hey I've got a I've got a wide forefoot or I've got a, a crazy long second toe or whatever it is and and have a better idea of what won't work initially and then um, kind of narrow it down from there I think that's a big part of it and I do think going to a local specialty run store where there is you know a, good, a really good you know kind of craft oriented shoe fitter um, that understands kind of uh, you know running gait and, and and shoe fitting is really important. Um, and then from there, hopefully they can offer, you know, three or four different models to try on. And I think the try on test is huge. I think, um, you know, I'm a big uh, proponent of, of buying and trying on um, when, when you're, you know, when you're there as opposed to buying on, on the Internet. Nothing wrong with the Internet, but um, unless you know what you're looking for, um, you might be shopping for the wrong the wrong model. But see, you try them on if there's a treadmill or you can run around the store. Certainly that's a big thing. It seems kind of obvious, but at the same time. I think your foot can tell you a lot in those first couple of runs. Like uh, it feels like it's slipping. It just feels like it's heavy. It's lagging. Whatever it is, it doesn't feel springy enough. Things like that. I think that are really go a long way um, in understanding that. I think that if you feel those things in the store when you try them on, you'll certainly feel them, you know, deep into a long run or two weeks later or two months later. And I think that you know there, there's been studies that you know that uh, Ben Arnig, a fa- famous uh, a scientist up in uh, University of Calgary, had done a study and said basically you know, comfort and how you perceive a shoe to be is, is a big part in actually you running better and more efficiently. And so hmm. take that for what it is. I mean, I think we all have our preferences. And um, I think part of the process that we need to do is like we have to avoid like saying, oh, I want that color shoe. I want that brand shoe or that's the hot shoe. I mean, I, I think if you can eliminate all those things and then you can go in and work with the shoe fitter, you can really kind of narrow down for yourself kind of what fits and what feels right in that whole intuitive connection between your foot and your brain, I think it's pretty, uh, it's pretty real. So that's, that's a big part of it. I think a, a big piece of going into a running store as well is getting the right size, because I tell a lot of runners, the size that you wear in your everyday shoes may not be the same size that you wear in running shoes. And I know personally, when I first started running, I was wearing two smaller running shoes, and it caused all kinds of problems. And just the desire not to run, want to run very much because they were uncomfortable. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that um, and people are conditioned to that based on either how their work shoes, school shoes, whatever, have fit all their lives. And then also what they've been taught is a good fit in running. And so um, I think, you know, I, I personally believe that, you know, a shoe should fit uh, snug in the heel and, and kind of through the arch um, in the midfoot and then ideally have room in, in the forefoot. But uh, but room for your foot to, to move, your toes to wiggle and stuff like that. Um, obviously, there's, there's a wide variety of possibilities of that. Obviously, a brand like Nike usually fits pretty snug. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, Ultra has obviously very, very roomy toe boxes um, tied to their belief of you really need the toes to splay out um, as you as you flex forward a toe off. And so there are a, a, a wide variety of kind of fits in the forefoot. But also to your point, I think that length is interesting too. I mean, I think that if we polled, you know, 10 different runners, we'd say we'd find out that like you know, half of those people have pretty, pretty snug and tight shoes and the other half might have more roomy shoes. And I think that, you know, I, I don't know if there is a right or a wrong. I, I personally like my toes to have some room and not be cramped. Um, every now and then I'll get a, like a road shoe that fits like a very much like a, like a track spike. I mean, like a, like a racing flat. And like, that, that's, that's so contrary to what I've, I want to feel now because I've been running in so many different shoes and toe boxes have d- definitely gotten wider. But I do think that there is a, a wide range of what both people have been conditioned to, but also what uh, what's out there too. So, so it, it takes a lot more time, I think, to to really get a fit that works for you um, than, it, than it has in the past. So what's the consensus now on the value of getting on a treadmill at the running store and having a gate analysis done with a high-speed camera? 
Yeah, that's interesting because um, when it first started happening, I think there was a lot of um, uh, buzz about that. I think that probably the best of those shoe fitters uh, that probably worked. I think that there is some belief that uh, in, unless it's a super high speed camera that can really kind of take, uh, you know, frame by frame and, and, and show things, it's um, maybe, you know, you might might be looking at something that is not really factual or, or real. I think um, certainly we know that most people, the majority of runners pronate to some extent, which pronation is a normal function, obviously. I think, you know, the biggest thing for the foot when it hits the ground, when the, as soon as it hits the ground, the next thing it has to do, your brain is telling it to find the big toe so the big toe can stabilize it before you can toe off. You, you just can't toe off until you the big toe hits the ground. So however your foot, based on your anatomy, based on your current strength, based on your injury history, is going to hit the ground and then find the big toe to the ground also with the the shoe whatever foam whatever plastic is underneath your foot is kind of that fifty thousand dollar question right so knowing all that um, everyone's um, gait pattern is going to be entirely different again left to right is going to be different and two different shoes will be different and so certainly uh, pronation is real pronation is um, can lead to over overuse injuries but it's also I think not also the big red alarm scare that it's been for so many years I mean I think that um, there's probably ways that you can uh, avoid that with shoe fit or and or strengthening your body so it's not um, not an overwhelming process certainly when your ankle and foot are rolling, the biggest concern is is what's happening up your kinematic chain. And so if your knee's moving considerably, that's what's going to cause, you know, all these common uh, running injuries, um, everything from runner's knee to IT band syndrome to uh, Achilles tendonitis, things like that. I mean, that's so those are the concerns. Those are real. Certainly, I think you can you can minimize those with a better shoe fit. And then also with inserts that might stabilize you a little bit more. Getting back to the high speed camera thing, I think it's interesting for sure. I think, uh, again, the best shoe fitters still do it well. I know there's uh, several tech companies that are really working on some cool kind of next gen kind of sensor um, tracking stuff that, that will probably in three to five years will really revolutionize that more too. I think that, um, you know, in labs, it's 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 kind of uh, fun and, and interesting to watch like a force plate and kind of where feet land and everything else. And I think that, you know, science is catching up with, you know, what was led by marketing for so long of so many shoes, you know, having uh, all these kind of rear foot uh, stability devices, uh, you know, all with good intent, but also to sell shoes too. So I think, I think it's, that's a good question. I think it's also uh, emerging and evolving too. So I was really interested in the book to read about what the timeline looks like between when a shoe idea is born to it actually being in a running store. So can you talk about like how long that is and, and what process a shoe goes through? Yeah. So, I mean, like, you know, I think we, we're all um, excited about some of the new shoes that are coming out right now. And, you know, especially these super uh, fast shoes with carbon plates, which those are different because it's a longer project. But even the shoes we're used to running, you know, if you look at like, the Asics Gel Kyano 26 or, you know, the Brooks Ghost 12, which just came out, um, even those took a year and a half, two years to, to evolve. And um, obviously there was a Brooks Ghost 11 and a 10 before that. And so when it, when the 10 was out there, you know, Brooks was, uh, you know, already had 11 mostly final and, and 12 was in the works. And, um, you know, that's done in, in a couple of different kind of ways, uh, but, but for reasons that are, you know, certainly to improve the shoe, certainly to evolve technology. You know, obviously if there's new, foams, there's new uh, upper materials coming out. Certainly, it takes a while to to get that into process. And then uh, again, certainly to sell more shoes. I mean, I guess one of the complaints of a lot of runners, um, sometimes me included, is your favorite shoe changes, you know, and like, oh, I love that version. And like all of a sudden, the next time it comes out, it's different, yep. vastly different sometimes. And so um, it does take a while. I mean, the whole production process of first idea to design to prototype 
to final production, you know, um, and, and because shoes are mostly sh- uh, made overseas, shipping overseas takes time. They all come over on a boat in crates and then they sit in customs and everything else. It takes a lot of time, just the functionality of it, you know. Um, so, you know, it takes, yeah, probably two years. Um, certainly shoes can be fast-tracked. There's been a bunch of shoes that are, are fast-tracked. I think the the very first Kinvara was from, from Saucony was a good example of that. They wanted to have a low-to-the-ground, soft, comfortable cushion shoe at the time when minimalism was was blowing up. So, you know, a brand can, you know, fast track it and bring it, bring it up six months before they thought they were going to. But generally that cycle is, you know, kind of a two-year cycle. Um, that said, with the other shoes we talked about earlier, some of the fancy uh, carbon plate shoes, some of those have been in works for two and three and four and five years. And as we've seen already with Nike, you know, for example, the the Vaporfly Elite, which you know, debuted privately to their athletes for the Breaking Two project two and a half years ago, obviously has been evolved a couple times. And commercially, um, it, it's been fun to see kind of behind the curtain sometimes to see what's what's coming out because obviously there's always something, you know, there's always some super secret project. There's always like, oh, this is, this is what's coming next, and you can't you can't write about this yet. And um, so that, that's exciting for sure, and it certainly tells the story that yeah, there's innovation happening all the time. And the other piece is that not every shoe makes it to market either. You know, there's a lot of shoes that are good ideas or um, in concept and, and just don't work out either because the materials don't work as well as they thought or the wear tests don't bear it out. But there's always always stuff in the works. So the uh, subtitle of the book is The Hype, Science, Culture and Cool of uh, Running Shoes. Can you kind of talk about the hype and what are some of the trends that have come and gone or maybe trends that have come and stayed? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, world? it's. It's interesting because I think, um, you know, even before my time, running shoes became this thing a little bit bigger than running. It almost became this commodity commodity of cool. You know, I think that, you know, long, long time ago, running shoes were all the same, low to the ground. And they were just this thing, no different than maybe like a baseball bat or whatever other sports gear out there. But then I think when the first running boom happened, there was a lot of buzz, a lot of branding, a lot of marketing that went forward. And um, there was suddenly this competition to like, you know, sell a lot of shoes. And, And as as sales were mushrooming, um, probably similar to how you know cell phones have been and other other consumer products have been. And if, if you look back at some of the old, you, know, you can see them on Pinterest now, like some of the old ads that were in Runner's World in the 70s of shoes, like a certain measure of hyperbole entered advertising and running shoes, you know, and they use humor, they use tactics to, to go against the competition, all kinds of stuff. And it's, it's fun to look at now, but you realize that back then there was this like big land grab for all these new runners coming out. And um, mm. that trend has continued, you know, and it's been based around things like um, foam and pronation control and like uh, comfort and, and speed, obviously lately speed um, for a while, minimalism. Um, you know, I think in the late 80s um, when Nike Air came out, everyone like was scrambling, you know, to do something uh, along those lines. I think Asics Gel came out shortly after that. You talk about with air pockets in the shoes. Correct. Yeah, correct. Which is a whole fascinating story, which I get into in the book in itself. I mean, like I, I'm not sure the end value of what Air did performance wise, certainly it was a marketing thing that worked real well. Cushioning wise, it seemed to work pretty well. And they, they certainly played it up. Um, you know, Nike Air is kind of uh, in the back seat for right now. There's, I mean, I'm sure they'll bring it back again, but they've, they've kind of done all the iterations that I guess they're going to do for a while. But, but um, every other brand reacted. So Asics Gel is still around, obviously. And, you know, uh, Reebok had the pump shoes where you pump up the outside and like, you know, it fills in the thing and that, that went away and then came back. And a lot of brands tried a lot of things, you know, and I think everyone has always kind of scrambled to either come up with their own innovation or to be a copycat that might look cool enough to sell. You know, I think that that's kind of the, the nature of this 
this industry we're in. And I, I think that like probably other other sports or other things have that in this world, but certainly it's it's been crazy prevalent in running. Um, and I say that because people buy running shoes for a lot of reasons, but they they also shop for like color and style first. And I think one of the first things running shoes became was like this this kind of personal badge of honor or identity saying, hey, I'm a runner, right? And like at some point, running shoes became the comfort shoe of Americans, not so much in, in Europe or definitely not in Asia, but like where if you go to an airport now or a baseball game or a, or a movie theater, most people are wearing running shoes, right? I mean, like maybe not in the winter and the snow, but like in the, in the normal yeah. time, I mean, everyone's wearing running shoes and, and, and you know that not everyone's a runner and that's not, that's not speaking um, in a derogatory way. It's just people like the comfort and style and everything else and, and what a running shoe says. And so I think that has always been like a big part of the kind of the nature of design and marketing and sales behind uh, running shoe brands. All these uh, people that are not necessarily runners, but are still going to buy the shoes for comfort. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation thus far. We'd like to take a quick moment and thank this episode's sponsor, Athletic Greens. Yes, I'm so excited that Athletic Greens is a sponsor of the podcast because I've been using this product for several months now. It's just one of those amazing supplements that you know is helping you cover your nutritional bases. It tastes great for a green drink. Um, there are many that don't. It's very convenient. I love the travel packs for when I'm on the road. Athletic Greens consists of 75 proven vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients that makes it one of the most complete supplements that you can buy. It includes prebiotics, probiotics, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, superfoods, and much more, and really helps support your body across five critical areas of health, including energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal and neural support and healthy aging yeah definitely check it out just head over to athleticgreens.com forward slash mta and you can claim this special offer which is 20 free travel packs which they normally sell for 79 dollars. you'll get 20 of these with your first purchase athleticgreens.com forward slash mta if we could time travel back to the 90s shoes were really overbuilt back then right what would we see Somewhere, somewhere in the late 80s to the early 90s, there was this whole buzz about design, right? And I think if you look at a lot of other things where it was kind of like this emerging era and, and um, also, you know, cable TV um, had a lot more you know, um, visibility of cool things and like, you know, MTV, a lot, a lot of different influences back then. And so you saw a lot of different colors, a lot of different patterns, a lot of different crazy things. And um, at some point, I think, you know, certainly Nike created the, um, the visible technology in the back of their air shoes, you know, with that little air pocket you could see. Because they had air, sh- air shoes for a couple of years, you, they didn't actually expose them. But once the, the visible technology thing came out, kind of every brand um, went from there and then tried to try to do more stuff you could see or touch or whatever else. And so putting a little window in the, in the sole correct. of the shoe. Yeah. Okay. Correct. Um, so that, that kind of set off a, a firestorm of like uh, at the same time with more kind of recreational runners were getting into running. It became this more of a like a look at me, look at my shoes kind of thing. And like. You know, Reebok was big in the game at that point. Nike was big at the game. Asics, you know, those are big brands doing a lot of cool things. Performance kind of went on on the back end as all these new runners were coming in, and and, and so all these brands were marketing this this uh, what I would call you know uh, superficial flash to to these new runners. And nothing entirely wrong with that. They weren't maybe um, again performance oriented to the core, but the the downside of it was like, a lot of shoes got heavier, and I think the whole notion of you know, what you could put on a shoe became more commonplace. And then, you know, instead of like, you know, having what was, you know, common for a men's size nine, a common like eight ounce trainer, all of a sudden, you know, there's a lot of 11 ounce shoes that, you know, by even the turn of the century at 2000, there's a lot of shoes that are like pretty weighted down. Right. Mm-hmm. And 
that's also because, you know, there were some primitive materials still being used uh, up through the late 90s. You know, certainly original EVA was not light. Um, when people tried to use more of it, obviously, it got heavier. Rubber is the, big, the heaviest thing on a shoe right now and was then. And then also, you know, the overlays were either not so much leather, but certainly vinyl or suede. Nose were heavy. Um, stitching, if you had up all the stitches, that was, that was more bulk. And so by the early 2000s, I mean, one of the reasons I think the minimalist craze happened was because people just want lighter shoes you know and yeah and that was around 2010 um a little bit before that maybe i mean like you know depending on how you look at it probably 2007 i mean there was a lot of things happening at the same time nike was doing their free project which was less about minimalism and more about just the, the flexion of the foot um you know newton came out in 2007 vibram had this shoe the five fingers um that kind of emerged at trade shows in like 2005 and wasn't really sold as a running shoe but then a lot of the um, proponents of barefoot or minimalist running got a hold of it and said, oh, this is great. And all of a sudden, running shoes started socking it. And so um, those kind of three brands together kind of really put like a big uh, fast forward on that. And then obviously uh, the studies out of Harvard and then uh, Chris McDougall's Born to Run really kind of exploded that whole thing. So we went from a period of being, you know, overbuilt and heavy in the early 2000s. If you remember, like even like Nike shocks, I mean, those were heavy shoes, you know, and not even talking about the technology. Um, it was just a heavy shoe, you know. And so, you know, when, when I was talking about 11 ounce trainers, you know, for a standard Ben size nine, I mean, there was plenty of 12 and 13 and 14, it was just heavier shoes, you know. And that was frustrating to me because I was typically used to lighter shoes. I appreciate lighter shoes. I like lighter shoes. But then we went to, you know, 180 degrees different to the minimalist boom. And then you're looking at, you know, super light shoes. But then all of a sudden there's no cushioning, no padding, no protection. And we quickly went, you know, whoosh, the other way. And so, <laughs> And that kind of came and went, though. I mean, the minimalism was just this explosion and then kind of well, subsided. I don't think it's necessarily subsided. I think pretty much you can get any type of shoe you want now. I mean, I think it, there's pockets of it that have stayed around. Well, sales of minimalistic shoes. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're both right. I think that um, it certainly took a turn. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, I think the biggest reason was uh, people were getting pretty hurt or pretty banged up right away from wearing minimalist shoes, you know, not to not to call out a brand because there was a lot of brands doing it. Every brand had all of a sudden minimalist shoes. But I think that even if not injured, a lot of people got um, just pretty beat up from the low to the ground feel with, without protection or cushioning. And so ironically or strangely, at the same time, minimalism was kind of at its, at its zenith. Um, that's when Hoka came out. And um, I mentioned that story in the book. Um, I had known the guys that had started, started Hoka. They used to be with another brand that I'd known them in the industry. And you know, one of the guys came to Boulder and was like, hey, I got to show you these shoes. And I'm like, you know, I saw him. I'm like, you got to be kidding me, right? <laughs> I, I still have my original my original OG Hoka's. Um, but certainly, I, you know, I was like, nah, no way. Come on, you know. And mm -hmm. they were actually fairly light for the size of what they were. They were below that 11 ounce um, barrier. And so we went for a run. And like right away, I'm like, huh, that's uh, – <laughs> And so uh, obviously Hoka's evolved, every other brand has evolved, but certainly that came at a time when people were like, yeah, I actually like cushioning. Yeah, I like that softness. And I have run in the, the original pair, you know, in the last year again. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so, so unstable and goofy <laughs> and car cartoon-like, but like, you know, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was such a difference at the time from running in like um, a very minimal low to the ground shoe, you know? And so I think, I think too, though, I think that Hoka also tried to incorporate some of the smarter things from minimalism, you know, a lower drop shoe. So not a 12 millimeter, you know, heel to toe, more of like a, a four to six range. They also had a, a very rockered shoe. So much, much smoother transition. And so there were, there were things that, that Hoka did that were, you know, based 
on some of the minimalist principles. And um, I think also at the time, maybe the thing that was really best for the industry is that when people realized they liked and wanted lighter shoes, again, at the same time, there was new technologies in foams and upper materials and, and construction techniques that were really allowing lighter shoes to be built. And so when the industry did an about face and by 2014 or so, you know, 2012, 2013, 2014, all of a sudden there was there was things where, you know, shoes with a no-sew design, so no stitches, just kind of either heat welded or glued on, um, just super light materials, uh, super light foams were coming out. Kind of a cra crazy time from going from super heavy shoes overbuilt to super lightweight minimalist. And then now, I think in a better place overall. Do you think that some of the running injuries that people experienced with the whole minimalistic craze could be because they pretty much jumped from like a 12 millimeter, you know, heel to toe drop to like these zero drop shoes, and they didn't really take that time to, you know, fully transition and be patient with the process? Um, absolutely. I think that uh, certainly that happened. I think that I know, I know people that were, you know, retailers have told me, runners have told me like, oh, they, got, they, they finally got their five fingers or again, any, any other brand. And then they went out and ran 10 or 20 miles on them. I think they were mm. super, you know, super zealous about it. And I, I get it. I mean, like reading Born to Run and, and seeing, you know, headlines in USA Today saying you should run barefoot, you know, like puts this charge in you. And like, you know, we all get charged up about new shoes. And uh, I think certainly it was it was a little bit misguided um, because of the shoes weren't uh, aligned with your most people's bodies. I think that, you know, me included, I think uh, recreational runners um, were not doing the same things that elite runners are doing. You know, I, I think I told the story that the, one of the reasons Meb Klefuski was so successful for so long was he was he was so diligent about doing drills and strength work and doing everything right. And if you compare to what Meb did, and I, I was I was lucky enough to see him do this many times and run with him. But um, if you see what Meb did, for example, and, and every other elite runner, they're always doing drills and strength work and like they're meticulous about everything. Whereas uh, recreational runners, we love to run. We're passionate about it. We sign up for races. We train to the best of our ability with, without life and work and family, you know, getting in the way. But we don't, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but we're not doing the same things. And so, you know, even for me to, to get into a minimalist shoe, yeah, it's like, do I have all the, the the calf and core strength that I that I could have, or definitely not as much as I had, you know, when I was 22. Um, you know, so it's like to, to expect that from a runner is probably unrealistic. And so, in in theory, there's a lot of coaches and physiologists saying, yeah, more transition time is needed. Certainly, that's true, but it's it's a whole like almost lifestyle shift that was needed, you know, to be able to successfully run in in lighter, lower to the ground shoes. And um, yeah, so people got hurt, and people also I think just preferred, you know, getting back to that whole choice thing loved you know the comfort and softness of shoes and so there's other stories that say that that maximalist cushioning can be detrimental to you and you know i don't think there's any one right answer i think that um certainly you got to find out what works for you and i also think that having a, a range of shoes uh, a quiver of shoes is important to just alter your gait and like you know run on different surfaces and not run the same shoe every day so now in this shoe evolution we've been going on here we're at the vaporfly moment <laughs> in history. Let's dig into your thoughts about these shoes and set expectations for people as far as what they can expect in performance. Yes, from them. it's interesting because I think um, there's a couple different ways to look at it. I think that certainly certainly there's been some advances in the last several years. Um, I, I think I first saw Hoka's prototype of their carbon fiber shoe in 2014. Obviously, Nike was the first to have one out um, as a prototype for their elites. In 2017, obviously, several brands. Uh, well, Hoka eventually brought two different carbon fiber shoes out last year, Carbon Rocket and Carbon X. Um, otherwise, there's a bunch of brands that are kind of sitting on a bunch of prototypes. 
that aren't either finished yet or they're maybe concerned about kind of what the regulations are going to be. Right. We'll, get, we'll get to that in a minute. But I think I think certainly what we've learned is that there's ways to create a new way of propulsing the, the foot and the human body forward by using a super soft foam that goes into what most people consider a lever, you know, a, a really firm, firm uh, midsole. And so, and I don't say spring there because I think, I think spring is probably a different thing, um, but I'll get to that in a second too. But anyway, so, so essentially using this as an example, the, the Vaporfly 4% from two years ago or a year and a half ago, you know, certainly super soft foam and heel, and then it springs forward. It's very stiff. And the idea is it uses less, there's less energy needed in the forefoot to, to toe off and also less tension in the heel and the calf and everything else. It's been tested to, to be 4% faster and more efficient. So certainly that, that design, again, being even brand agnostic, that design obviously is not, is not patented. That's, you know, certainly other brands are trying to figure it out as well. Um, Nike came out with it first. There's been a huge kind of uproar uh, recently. Certainly the shoe that uh, Elliot Kipchoge ran in uh, in Vienna a couple weeks ago to run sub two hours um, was a shoe that's a prototype and apparently has several layers of carbon fiber plates and various cushioning materials. And so that might be considered a spring. Um, uh, and the reason it's different is because there actually is uh, carbon fiber compressing against each other to create more of a propulsive feel. Whereas the, the, a lot of the original ones, including the Hoka Carbon X, the Hoka Carbon Rocket, um, are much more just this flow where you kind of round into the um, carbon fiber plate and it and it kind of levers you forward. Um, getting back to something I wrote in Runner's World a couple of weeks ago, you know, the IAAF considers all springs illegal, but like to me, any foam that's ever been in any shoe is a spring, right? It's there for compressing and, and returning energy. And so mm. that's where that's where this whole thing becomes a total gray area, right? I mean, like we, we've seen Tour de France bikes have miniature motors in them, right? I wouldn't want to see that in running <laughs> shoes. But at the same time, I mean, like running shoes have already had like electronics in them at some point. Uh, carbon fiber plates have been around for 15 or 20 years in different shoes that haven't done as well. But so, I mean, to answer the question, yeah, we're at a, we're at a place of huge evolution and it'll be interesting to see when Saucony um, and Brooks and, and New Balance and other brands bring out additional shoes that have some kind of plate in them. Um, Asics is working on one that doesn't have a carbon fiber plate, but it does the same thing. So it's not even about carbon fiber. It's um, certainly it's about this softness um, and propulsion of, of the stiffness. So I, I think we're definitely in a period where there is a an enlightened way to make a shoe to run faster. The question is going to be, what do we consider fair or unfair? I mean, if if Kipchoge has that shoe and no one else does, um, it's it doesn't seem to be a competition legal shoe. If they make you know the carbon rocket for everybody and you know you have to go buy it, um, it's available. It's it's there. I, I've heard a lot of elite athletes in the last couple of weeks talking, you know, um, kind of Olymp Olympic trials qualifiers, thinking like, oh, should I buy the shoes? Should I not buy the shoes? <laughs> My answer is like, go buy the shoes. I mean, like you, you got to have them, you know, and that can be kind of sticky, though, if they're um, they're sponsored by another shoe brand. Right, right. And that, you know, that could violate their contract. So I can see how that'd be a lot of you know gray area there. No, absolutely. And I've actually heard a couple of stories about that where, where yeah, athletes are, you know, um, I've heard plenty of stories of unsponsored athletes kind of buying their own. And then I've also heard athletes who are kind of mid-level uh, with one brand, they're like, oh, I got to have the shoes. And, um, you know, one, one of the, uh, a brand guy told me last week, he's like, oh, you know, this guy who's sponsored by us, um, he, he broke his contract more or less just to run his shoes. And he, mm -hmm. he ran a PR and he qualified for trial. So um, certainly, wow. certainly, you know, if, if you look at like, you know, last year I was at uh, California International Marathon in the starting line, starting corral, everybody, like 90% like of the runners had the bright orange Nike 4%. And then if, if you go this year, 
to the like, Grandma's Marathon or Boston. Um, Next Percent wasn't yet available in Boston except for the elites. But like by the time Next Percent came out, there was a considerable amount of those. And if you went to New York, I mean, like you could see like that the, there's so many people wearing either the bright orange or the bright green or bright pink shoes of the Nike 4% or Next Percent. So it's 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 been a phenomenon so far. I think also one of the factors that people get upset about is because of course it's Nike and and <laughs> Nike is is uh, easy to love and easy to hate. I think um, they're polarizing and and for, for any number of reasons. But I asked the question like, okay, if it was another brand that did it first, if it was Saucony or if it was New Balance, would people be that upset or would they be more intrigued? Hmm. Right. Do you think there's a cutoff pace um, where people, maybe the risks outweigh the benefits of running in a shoe like that. I mean, you know, with running form and all that goes into it. Yeah, because we've solicited some questions from listeners, and here's a, a great one from Karima. She said, from the research I've heard, the faster you are, the more improvement you get from vapor flies. And it seems like if someone is over a 3.30 marathon pace, the effects might not be as significant. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think that with, especially with the 4% shoes, um, about a year ago, I was in about 310 to 305 shape. And I did have a, a little bit of a nagging high hamstring kind of tweak. And I got my first pair of 4%s and I, I ran a tempo run in them. I did some other workouts in them. And um, the softness of that shoe, based on the paces I was running, because I'm not, you know, again, 305 is, is not 230, is not 215, is not 205. Um, and my gait style, I think, contributed to myself only exacerbating the situation I had. I'm not going to say the shoe caused me injury. It didn't. But the softness of the shoe, um, in the, in the, and I was running slower, I was crashing in heel more, and then I wasn't picking up the benefits of the plate until later in my gait. And so I think that's an example example of one of, of how it's got to work with your, your, your gait and your system and your, and your speed. I think that for me, the next percent shoe is much more stable in rear foot and I don't have a hamstring problem anymore. And so I can run in the next percent and feel great. Uh, the Carbon X is, I think, even more democratic. I think you can land about anywhere and it's going to bring you into that motion pretty decisively. So I do think that um, there is, probably is a cutoff. I think that if you're, I, I'm not sure what that time is. I, I know for me that I might be on the cusp of it. You know, I, I have a really big goal of wanting to break three again next year in Chicago. And I would like to, you know, have the benefit of whatever shoes out there. But I think that um, if I were to run like, say, 330, um, I'm not sure that uh, that kind of shoe would benefit me right now because of the way my gait is. And, and you know, that's just a slower pace. I think that I, I just don't think I'd benefit that much. So someone running a slower pace, like let's say they're four and a half hour or five hour marathoner. They're not landing midfoot or forefoot and getting that spring effect. I shouldn't say the word spring, right? That lever effect. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, you can call, call it what you will until somebody tells us otherwise, right? But uh, <laughs> I, I think that uh, yeah, I, I think it has to do with a lot of things. I think it has to do with certainly, yeah, your 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 velocity, um, your gait, your landing, your inherent um, toe off ability. I think I think there's I think there's probably about five variables in that whole equation. I, and okay. I think that by saying oh you know 4:30, I mean it's not necessarily bad you know. And I, and I appreciate 4:30 marathoners as I know you guys do too. But like it, it, there's there's several variables in there. And so some 4:30 runner could be super efficient, lighter in their feet, and might be able to benefit from that. Um, just just as you know some 255 runner might not benefit from it um, or 305 runner. So I, I think there's several variables in that. I think it is kind of how your foot, your gait, 
um, your own ability to, to have uh, a powerful toe off kind of mixes with that. So I think that generally, yeah, I think that uh, a runner who is probably, you know, just to, just to be yeah, 330 or slower might not get the benefit out of that shoe as much as a, another shoe. Because there are a lot of other great shoes out there now that could be fast. And there's a lot of light, fast shoes that um, whether you like a lot of cushioning or low, low to the ground feel, um, there's a lot of other great shoes out there right now. So I think the zeal to get, you know, these fancy shoes that cost a lot of money might actually hurt some people who could be benefiting from uh, a different type of shoe. Yeah, that's a great assessment. So what's a way that a runner can get the most out of their running shoes? What about rotating through different models of shoes? Is that a way to prolong the life of your shoe, not wearing it every single day? Yeah, I think that, you know, I speak a lot about having a quiver of shoes. And I think that that extends the life of it if you have two or three pair. And I'm not suggesting that any runner goes out and buys two or three pair. It's more like, you know, kind of offset when you're buying the new shoes. And I think that goes a long way in doing two things. One, uh, preserving each shoe because um, you're you're kind of uh, rotating it, however, however you're rotating it, whether you have a, a long run shoe and a speed shoe or an everyday shoe. Um, I think that's a good thing. I think it also allows you to vary your gait just enough on a daily basis where you're not falling into the same prey of the exact same stride. I think that having, I know, I know we talk about how running is a simple sport and you can have a pair of shoes and shorts and a shirt and go run. The challenge with that is that if you are a runner, again, who's in that same, same place as me as a recreational runner and you have time to do a run a day and not much more, um, you know, without all the strides and stretching and all the massage that elites get, then you wind up having this repetitive pattern that can be detrimental. You know, it's like you get imbalanced left to right. You get, you know, kind of a soreness in one place. It's not never going to go away. And then your body compensates for it. And then all of a sudden your gait's subconsciously torqued. And, oh, my IT band did go away, but then now it's like I hurt my left Achilles. And so I do think that uh, running in different shoes, a couple different pairs of shoes every week is, is ideal. I was. I hear a lot from runners that say, you know, I've got my marathon coming up in two weeks, and I've got 450 miles on this one pair of shoes, and then I just bought this new pair, you know, for my marathon, but they don't really feel that good. So should I wear the old shoes or the new shoes? You know, and so like you were talking about, kind of introducing shoes before the old ones are completely dead is a really smart thing. You don't want to wait till you know right before your your goal race to start getting a, you know, a brand new pair of shoes because you're not guaranteed <laughs> that you're going to like them as well. What is, what's kind of the cutoff or does it vary between running shoe as far as when it's time to retire them? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's certainly um, guesstimates of, you know, 300, 400, 500 miles. I think that uh, kind of like what you alluded to, your foot and your brain probably know best. I, I would always set aside, you know, a, a special pair that you would race in. Um, not because they have to be this um, expensive, fancy pair of shoes, but it just uh, kind of sets aside, like, these are, these are special, these are important, I want to race in these. And so if you get back to the quiver idea and have multiple shoes, if you're using that same marathon shoe only for, you know, tempo runs or fartlek runs during your training, hopefully two things. One, you're used to that, you understand that feeling, that, that that shoe also feels fast and light for you, and that's a perfect way to get it into the marathon, right? I definitely wouldn't buy a shoe um, in the final two weeks uh, and, and run a marathon in it. Unfortunately, I've done that, and that's not a good idea. Um, but uh, I wouldn't recommend that. Let's say uh, I think that I think certainly having a shoe um, on your feet for the same pace um, as a marathon many times before is, is a smart thing to do. I wouldn't all of a sudden take a shoe that you've worn twice for slow training and all of a sudden, oh, it's my marathon shoe. Because um, I think just there'll be too many unknowns and too many things that happen or just don't work the way you think they will. And, and vice versa too. I wouldn't I wouldn't do it the other way around either. And I also wouldn't take the shoe you've run most of your miles in. 
um, and then take that into the race, if only because you're not going to feel light and fast in that for for the reasons that we've already talked that, you know, shoes definitely do wear down and um, you, you want that special feeling on race day. Oh, that's excellent advice. Yeah. I've had some shoes that a little over 200 miles, like my legs start feeling really flat and like tired. And I'm like, huh, you know, it can't be time for to retire these already. But just because of the way the shoe's constructed, the type of shoe it is. And then there's others, you know, that you can get more mileage out of. So it's definitely all about keeping track of your mileage for one thing on each shoe. I think that's really important. And then, you know, listening to your body for sure. Absolutely. I think, yeah, I think that's, that's key. I think that um, I've done runners who have tracked the mileage or like even written in a, a Sharpie on the date they got them so they knew what it was and um, whether you're tracking miles or approximate miles from the duration of, oh, I've had these four months. Uh, I think that certainly helps. Um, and also, again, just to feel like if you go out in a, a run, you know, whether it be five or 10 or 15 miles, then you, you go, ah, my feet feel terrible. I go, oh, it's, it's kind of a good sign. I mean, like um, that you probably either need new shoes or kind of kind of push that out of your rotation a little bit. So we're like you. We love to try and rotate shoes. We've been running in Ons, the Swiss mm-hmm. company, recently. What has your experience been with Ons? Um, yeah, I think Ons is one of those brands that came on the on the marketplace. Um, you know, probably uh, around t- 2011, 2012, I think. And it, it's interesting because, like, you know, On and Hoka Ultra were some of the brands that really have, have been outliers to really kind of create something new. Um, for years before that, it was hard for shoe brands to break in. There was typically like, you know, the eight dominant shoes on a shoe wall and not many more. A few brands certainly went away. Um, but if you look at the brands that tried to break in, like Pearl Zumi made great shoes um, and they, they were a, they're an established company. They're mostly in bike. They were in triathlon. They got into running. They made great shoes, but they just couldn't get shelf space just because it was different back then. And like uh, most of the shoe retailers were only looking at those eight eight big brands, right? That, that's where they sold their business. And um, But I think after the minimalist era came through and some other brands popped up, you know, like Newton and, and, and Five Fingers and, and a lot of others, some for good, some for some for not so good. But um, And then Hoka was the first brand that really stuck around, I think, and did something different. Um, On also did something different, obviously. And I think that was, that was the key. These new brands had to do something really different and innovative, both from a sales point of view, but also from a performance point of view. And so I like Ons a lot. I mean, certainly they have a really clean aesthetic. Certainly, I know that's that's one of the reasons that they've been eye-catching. So they've, they've done well. That, that cushioning system they have with the clouds is really interesting. I think it, you know, certainly it gives an idea of uh, what I would call tuned cushioning. So knowing that every part of your foot needs a different level and um, different type of interaction with the ground. Um, I think for so long, a lot of shoes were made with just kind of one slab of foam with the same kind of foam or maybe a medial post, but but otherwise, you know, not much more. Whereas I think what On really did was they brought this unique type of cushioning that really kind of um, was dynamic and it changed when your foot hit the ground, you know, as it rolled, you know, however it rolled uh, toward the forefoot, uh, it had a different uh, kind of feeling and sensation underfoot, which I think is important. Awesome. Well, I feel like I could talk to you all day because <laughs> I love talking running shoes, but, you know, we want to be respectful of your time here and we really appreciate you coming on the show. We recommend this book to everyone who loves running shoes as well. I mean, I learned so much. There is so many great tidbits in the book that are just fascinating. So everyone needs to go pick up a copy or, of course, you know, listen to it on a run. <laughs> I appreciate it very much. I mean, I could definitely talk shoes all day as well. I think it's a <laughs> fascinating topic. I think I think one of the things that writing the book did, it really, you know, um, and as it's come out is like, 
Yeah, certainly runners are passionate about shoes. You know, it's like I think that for years it was almost like the second nature thing that wasn't really talked about as much. And but then if you look at like a golfer to his golf clubs or like, you know, any kind of sport, like how, how much a baseball player appreciates the, the broken in feel of his glove or whatever else. I think there's a lot of aspects like that that really carry over into running shoes. And I think that, you know, us as runners, I think, yeah, we get we get geeked out on things. And we, but we also know what works and what doesn't work. You know, I think, you know, why we like a shoe has a lot to do with you know, the excitement and joy and performance of our own running. And I think that, you know, we all want to run better, run happy, all these things that, that running brings into our lives. And I think running shoe is the conduit for that. Awesome. Brian, thanks so much for uh, taking time to delve deep into running shoes with us. It's been great. Yeah, guys, thanks for having me on. I think that uh, certainly uh, your questions uh, and your knowledge are obviously uh top tier and uh, i'll definitely listen to your podcast and um i think that you know people that are uh, out there listening i mean certainly w- when you have experienced runners that know what they're talking about i think that that makes all the difference in the world i think that too much too much fluff came through running for years where people were just you know doing different things and i think the, the kind of questions and, and quality and commitment to running you guys display is really really great well thanks so much we appreciate it All right. Well, hope you enjoyed that interview with Brian Metzler. Big thanks to Brian for the great book and great conversation about running shoes. Well, in just a moment, we want to kind of circle back and hit some more points about running shoes just to make sure you have some takeaways from this episode. But before we do that, we'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, On Running. You heard us mention On Running Shoes. These are the shoes that we've been running in this year. I've done a lot of races in them, both on trails and on roads. Yeah, that's right. I've done my last five marathons in the On Cloud Swift shoe. Love them, love them, love them for sure. And we also have the trail shoes as well. And for those who aren't familiar with the brand On, it was born in the Swiss Alps, and they have one goal, to revolutionize the sensation of running. And so their entire company is based around the idea of zero-gravity running, and they've quickly become one of the fastest-growing running brands in the world. Yeah, that's right. They have these what they call cloud elements. You put these babies on, they are just a very smooth ride. And, of course, they have a full range of shoes and apparel to power your training. Just go to on-running.com. That's on-running.com forward slash MTA. You can test out their shoes, experience them firsthand. That's on-running.com forward slash MTA. We'd also like to thank the Chirp Wheel Plus for sponsoring this episode. Don't let back pain stop you from enjoying your run. Get the Chirp Wheel Plus. It's a pain relief device that targets the muscles around your spine. And it's shaped like a wheel wrapped in a compression padding. So you just kind of roll out your spine. They have the spinal cradle that cradles your spine and gives your muscles a four-way stretch. And unlike foam rollers, this patented spinal canal relieves pressure on your spine and also targets knots in your back. And I have quite a few knots in my back (laughs) that it feels really good on. They've got a 12-inch gentle wheel. They've got a 10-inch medium wheel, a 6-inch deep tissue wheel. It will elongate your spine and provide your muscles with needed relief. Just a few minutes of roll on the Chirp Wheel Plus can really help elongate those muscles and work out any tension and knots. So head over to gochirp.co forward slash MTA. That's a .co, not a .com. To get your Chirp Wheel Plus three pack for 15% off if you use the code MTA. That's gochirp.co forward slash MTA and use the code MTA to get your Chirp Wheel Plus three pack for 15% off. All right, so we felt it would be useful just to kind of circle back and go over some takeaways about running shoes because I'm always thinking about the practical. You know, when I hear a conversation or read a book, I'm always thinking, all right, what do I take home from this? What do I do next? So Angie's going to go over some running shoe tips here for us. 
Yeah, that's right. I think the first thing to remember is that there's no one perfect shoe for every runner. It's it's going to vary a lot. So, you know, often we tend to see what our, our running friends are wearing, or maybe, you know, we see an Olympian or athlete wearing a certain shoe. Um, it doesn't mean necessarily that sh- that particular shoe is going to work great for you. So it's an individual thing. Um, if you're new to running or it's been a few years, try to find a specialty running store to get fitted for a new pair of shoes. Your foot may also change during and after pregnancy or after a weight loss or weight gain. So that's important to take into consideration. And the shoe store employee should ask you about your running, things like the type of mileage that you do, maybe the surfaces that you run on, and any issues that you currently have. If they don't ask you that stuff, make sure you volunteer it so they can get a better look at what your shoe needs are. The shoe should feel comfortable, it should fit your heel well, and allow for room to wiggle your toes. So you don't want anything that's too tight, unless you're going for a track spike, of course. Try the shoe on with socks similar that you wear while running. And it's also helpful to go a little bit later in the day when your feet have swelled a bit, because that mimics the fit of the shoe after you've been running for a few miles. And remember, the size that you wear in your normal everyday shoes may not be the same size of running shoes that you need, and brands often have different fits. Also, don't try to drastically change the type of shoe you're wearing without a proper transition period. If you've been wearing a heavier, more cushioned, well-built-up shoe, don't try to go to a zero-drop minimalistic shoe without taking several months to transition properly. I'm going from Hocus to Vibrams immediately. (laughs) Don't do it. It's also important to track the mileage on your shoes so that you know when it's time to perhaps retire a shoe. Um, Or, you know, some people write the date on the shoe so they can get an estimate of their mileage. And then add another pair of shoes to your rotation before the old pair is worn out. You don't want to have one pair of shoes that's totally worn out before you start a new pair of shoes in your rotation because it does take time to break in uh, that new pair. Another great tip is to wear different types of shoes and models for different types of runs. This is going to help challenge your foot and ankle in different ways. And plus, it will also prolong the life of your running shoes if you're not wearing the same pair every single day. And you know what else? Don't feel ashamed if you have a dozen pairs of running shoes like Angie. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually kind of common. I mean, even though we do this for a living, you would expect us to have lots of running shoes. But we know plenty of runners who have a regular day job. They just love to run. They do marathons. And they also have umpteen pairs of running shoes. Right, Angie? Right. Yeah. I mean, I typically maybe have anywhere from four to six pairs of shoes in my current running shoe rotation because I'm really careful to retire old shoes and then just get them out of the rotation. But yeah, I know people who definitely have more. (laughs) Okay. I always exaggerate the amount of pairs of shoes that Angie has. (laughs) Yes, you do. It's not quite a dozen. (laughs) Um, It's also important not to wear your running shoes for other activities. You can obviously do this with your retired running shoes. They can have a second life as shoes that you wear every day for walking around or mowing the lawn or, or whatever you like to do. But make sure you keep the running shoes specifically for running. And it's also important to take care of your shoes. Avoid storing shoes in extreme temperatures so they don't like to be really hot or really cold. Wash shoes as needed by hand or in a gentle washing machine cycle, and don't put your shoes in a dryer or near a radiator. It can melt a lot of the glues and fabrics. Um, If you have wet shoes, make sure you take out the lining and then lightly stuff the shoes with newspaper to speed up the drying process. And finally, consider donating old shoes after you retire them. Many go on to different countries, and there's a lot of life left in them after they're not as comfortable for running. Well, I definitely appreciate my running shoes and all that they do for me a little bit more now after this episode. But before we wrap up, we do have a special audio clip we want to play. 
uh, a call I recorded with a listener named Debbie who has been tuning into the MTA podcast since we began back in 2010. It's amazing that we're coming up on 10 years and I've been talking with runners who've been listening since the beginning. I've got some calls that I want to play for you guys as we uh, approach our 10-year anniversary. I really wanted to find out why these folks started listening to the podcast originally and what's kept them running through the years and what motivates them. So it's a cool way to get a little inside look into the lives of your fellow runners and listeners. So here's my call with longtime listener and Academy member, Debbie Gelber. Okay, I'm speaking now with Debbie Gelber from Texas. Let's start with this. How long have you been listening to the MTA podcast? I've been listening since the very beginning, Trevor. <laughs> That's 2010. awesome. And 2010. So can you remember like episode one? Was it that long ago? Oh, Lord, I can't remember. I can't remember exactly what was on episode one. But oh, I can't either. I-, <laughs> <laughs> I think that episode was only 20 minutes long. Now everything's like an hour and 20. Perfect. So what attracted you to the podcast? Well, I didn't know what a podcast was. In 2010, my husband turned me on to podcast and that's when I was just getting started running. So I typed in the search bar marathon or running or something. It's been Mm -hmm. way too long to remember. And your podcast came up and I absolutely fell in love with the banter between you and Angie. And I love the fact that you were a beginner runner just like me. Mm -hmm. And it was just a fun thing to listen to. And I used to listen on my runs a lot. I don't as much on my runs anymore because I don't really listen to anything on my runs anymore. But I listen to you on my 35-minute commute to my job or on my dog walks. What do you do for a living? I am a college fine arts professor. Nice. So I guess you and I, we we can't call ourselves beginners anymore in this marathon thing, like in 2010, because you've run a lot of marathons and uh, you're pretty prolific in racing. So can you tell us a little bit about what that has looked like in the last 10 years or so? Sure. I caught the marathon bug early. Uh, My first marathon was in 2010, and now I am 32 marathons later. That's awesome. uh, 150K and 150-miler included in those, yes. Any that stand out? What are some of your races that you've done that you're the most proud of or maybe the most memorable? Oh, gosh, a lot of them. Of course, Boston. My first Boston was in 2017. And I got there because I was coached by Angie. Oh, yeah. Amazing. You remember what your qualifying time was? Yes, I got a 343.45 at Rebel Mount Charleston. That's great. More remarkable than you being a listener since the early days is you continue to run marathons. You've continued to do it well, qualifying for Boston, running a 50 miler. So what keeps you motivated to keep doing this? Well, I just keep signing up for races and (laughs) I'm a very economical type person. So if I sign up for a race and drop, oh, $200 on an entry fee, I'm certainly going to keep training for it. And I'm a very goal oriented person. So I just set these goals and try like heck to reach them. That's a great trick is to keep signing up for races. I mean... I think that keeps Angie and I going too. Putting a race on the calendar is extremely motivating because I'm like you too. I want to get my money's worth out of it. So I'm not going <laughs> to plunk down the money for registration and then not go. Exactly. 
And if I go, I want to go trained. So then that keeps me running. So yes, it does. So are you one of those kind of people, maybe like Angie, you just really look forward to exercising or do you kind of have to make yourself do it sometimes? No, I, I'm more like Angie. I absolutely fell in love with exercising. I was a big couch potato uh, pre-2009, actually. Okay. But no, I cross train about three times a week and I run a lot. So what made you decide to change your life like that? Well, my husband and I were reaching zero birthdays. I was reaching 40 and he was reaching 50 and we had just gotten married and saw our wedding pictures and freaked out and said, we are going in the wrong direction here. Mm. So we just kind of set a goal to reach a certain weight by our zero birthdays. And I lost 55 pounds and he lost 85 pounds. Wow. And we kept it off pretty much for the past 12 years now. That's excellent. Wow. Well, thank you for being such a longtime listener and also inspiration to us and everyone in our community. So what is your next marathon? I'm so excited. My next marathon is the original Athens Marathon. Yeah, that's one I've, I've been hoping to do. So I look forward to hearing about it. Well, thanks again for uh, being a longtime podcast listener and Academy member and just inspiration to all of us and keep up the great work. You too. Keep those podcasts coming. Another 300 on the way. (laughs) And of course, we're so grateful to Debbie Gelber. She's been a longtime member and was a former coaching client of mine. And she is just one of those people who takes action and just keeps chasing her goals. And we'd like to say congratulations to her. She did finish the Hilly Athens Marathon with a time of four hours, 38 minutes and 28 seconds. And that was marathon number 33 for her. I've seen some pictures, uh, both Debbie's and other runners that were there, of the medal that they give out there at the Athens Original Marathon. Pretty nice bling. That's got to be just an amazing experience to go to Greece to run the Athens Marathon. Definitely on my bucket list. Yeah, that does sound amazing. Even though she did say it was like 20 kilometers uphill. (laughs) So they really make you work for that medal and that experience. That's right. Well, that brings us to the end of the shoe episode here. Thank you so much for being a listener and subscriber. So great to be on this running journey with you, whether you are a longtime listener like Debbie or maybe just found us. And of course, you can get all the show notes, links, everything that was mentioned over on the website, along with this episode, marathontrainingacademy.com. And when you're over there, you can check out our other podcast episodes and other cool stuff that we have. And if we can answer any questions for you or help you in any way, there is a contact form on our website. And if you ever thought about hiring a running coach just to see what that can do for you and your training, you can learn more about that over on the coaching page on our website. So until next time, be safe out there. And remember, you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Right on my way.